so this morning's reading is uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 12 through to uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully what you can boast boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of our Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia And then have you sent me on my way to Judea? Was I fickle while I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, But in him it's always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it. That it was not, it was not in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but we work, but we work with you for your joy, because it, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote you as I did so that when I came I would not be distressed by those who should make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Morning, everyone. My name's Gavin, and Matt and I had a bet some years ago. If ever our teams beat each other, we have to wear each other's paraphernalia at church. So Matt's going to proudly wear the West Tigers scarf all morning. Sadly, I won't be here in morning tea to see it. I have to head back to Glidswood Hills. But I'll be checking up, don't worry. It's really nice to be with you here uh, this morning to uh, 
teach from God's Word to you, and it's a, it's a wonderful letter, and I, um, I urge you all to get into it deeply, uh, this term in your growth groups and in your own private study, and, uh, and lap it up and enjoy it and benefit from it. I'll pray, ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your Word, the Bible. We thank you for its truth and its power to change us, to be more Christ-like. Uh, Lord, as followers of Jesus, we long to be more Christ-like. Uh, so work in us by your Spirit to that end. If there are those here today in the room or tuning in online who haven't yet put their trust in Jesus, Lord, we pray that you work in them by your Spirit. Convict them of the truth of the Gospel. Help them to repent and believe. In Jesus' name, uh, Amen. <clears throat> well, I wonder, friends, uh, what is it that motivates you in life? What is it that compels you in life, perhaps it's holidays. Perhaps it's the next a family holiday. Our friends, our family were away in Nelson Bay recently. Was swimming just in the shallows, and three dolphins came in to join us, only a couple of meters away, which was just extraordinary. We swam with the dolphins for free uh, this week, which was really cool. Perhaps holidays are what kind of keeps you going through your week to get to the next holiday. Uh, perhaps it's your career. Perhaps you're career-driven. You, there's a pretty nice North Sydney corner office looking over the harbour. Perhaps it's your career, uh, your job advancement. What's the next kind of step for you in your career? Uh, perhaps it's sport that compels you in life. I was very blessed to be invited along with Lachlan Alden and his family to the Western Sydney Wanderers game a couple of weeks back, uh, sponsored by Ronald McDonald House. We got to go and watch the soccer. It was wonderful to be there. Uh, with Lockie watching the Wanderers win. Um, perhaps it's uh, family that motivates you in life. Here's my lovely family. Away on holidays, different holiday. Um, seems like we go on holidays a lot, doesn't it? Um, perhaps your family is what motivates you in life, compels you uh, in life. Or is it the one massive thing that motivates everyone in Harrington Park, Harrington Grove, Gregory Hills, Gledswood Hills, Kirkham, motivates everyone, and that is, of course, your front lawn. Here's, <laughs> here's my front lawn and me sitting on the front lawn. Oh, that's actually my front lawn. It's not too bad. Maybe it's your lawn. Um, I don't know if you remember who pulled... Who can remember me pulling this joke about seven years ago, the same front lawn? Yeah, a few nods, yeah. Peter can remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm running out of jokes already. Sad. What is it that motivates you and compels you in life? We're going to see today in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, a man who is passionate, who is driven, who is compelled by something, motivated um, by something. And it's none of the things that I've just shown you, as good as all those things, uh, as good as those things are. I can lose my lawn now. Thanks. Thanks so much. Um, <clears throat> I know it's nice. But, uh, this man isn't compelled by any of those things. He's compelled by something far, far greater. But despite the fact that he's compelled by this wonderful thing, he's being falsely accused. He's being accused of wrongdoing. He's being accused of being double-minded. And of course, I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. And Paul starts this section writing in defence of his actions and his words. See, he told the Corinthians, whom he first visited on his way to Macedonia in the north, that he would visit them again on his way back. But for good reason, Paul changed his mind. And instead, he wrote a letter, which is referred to in the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore, 
they're accusing him of being double-minded and unreliable. You said you're going to come, but you didn't. They're accusing him of being worldly. He says one thing, but then he does another. The facts are that the reason for Paul's first visit to the church was because of a major issue within the church, which we don't have all the details of. Someone did something serious that caused a major division in the church, and Paul visited. Um, Upon his departure, though, the crisis was still unresolved. So he wrote this second letter to Corinthians. um, Sorry, he wrote a second letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And it seems from chapter 7 of this letter that the second letter does... It has the desired effect. So first his reason for not returning is he figures there's no point in returning. My first visit didn't help. Better off to write you a letter. Um, And this is clear from chapter 2. And the second reason is because something happens in Ephesus that makes him despair even of life itself, it says, which we read about last week. Paul's defence is he always does what's best under God's grace. He's always trying to live for Jesus. He's always trying to do what's best for Jesus and the church. He decided it was best not to return. Look at verse 12 in your Bibles. This is our boast. Our conscience testifies we've conducted ourselves in the world, especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We've done so relying not on worldly wisdom but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand, and I hope that... As you've understood us in part, you'll come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. What a boast. Look at God, he says. God is awesome, I'm not. Paul can only ever act with honesty and sincerity because he acts by God's grace. The church's accusations are unfounded and unfair. And verse 14 explains that all will be revealed on the day of the Lord, when the Lord Jesus returns. On that day, Paul will be found to be innocent. By God's grace, they will boast in one another's honesty and sincerity on that day. Paul's only boast, his only claim to fame is to know Jesus. As a follower and apostle of Jesus Christ, being unreliable is just not an option for Paul. The message that Paul preaches and is now reminding them of is a message of reliability, of trustworthiness. Look at verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it's always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. You see, throughout the whole entire Old Testament, right from the beginning of man, God made promises to his people. God promised Noah it would never again flood the way it did that day back then. God promised Abraham that from him would come a great nation and blessing and promised land, and it did. God promised David that from that his descendants would come one who would rule with peace and justice forever. From the line of David was born the Lord Jesus. All the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfilment in Christ. Paul's accusers, those who were leading the church astray, turning the church against him, they say the Old Testament's redundant, it's been superseded by Jesus. Paul explains that Jesus does not abolish the law, rather fulfills the law. 
God does not ignore the promises of the Old Testament now that Christ has come. In Jesus, God answers yes to all the promises that he has made throughout the Old Testament in his Son, the Lord Jesus. God's trustworthiness is absolute, made perfect through his Son. Because God's perfect promises are made perfect through his perfect Son, we as Christians have a steadfast assurance and hope in life and for eternal life. Look at verse 21. Now it's God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. What a joy and comfort that God makes us stand firm in Christ. Those who trust in Jesus are made to keep trusting in Jesus by God's spirit. That's a comfort to us. We will be kept by God. What God has begun, he will finish. Romans 8 is probably my favourite chapter of the Bible, and Paul writes this, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. By God's spirit, we stand firm in Christ. God helps us stand firm. But it's not an individual thing, it's a together thing as a church. Paul's letters are addressed to the church as a whole, not to each individual. It would go without saying that everyone would gather for church every week, probably every day uh, in that first century, to read the, to hear God's word read and to worship the Lord Jesus together. Many of the people in the first century there were eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. Imagine their excitement at being disciples of Jesus if they've actually seen him or heard firsthand the accounts about him. Imagine their excitement of gathering each day with their brothers and their sisters in Christ, their church family. Sadly, we've, we've lost some of that excitement, haven't we, 2,000 years ago, that excitement about gathering together with our brothers and sisters in Christ to remember and celebrate that Jesus is risen and is alive. Sometimes we ask ourselves, should I go to church today? Should we go to church uh, this week? Are we too tired? Rather than having that excitement and that fervour to go to church, that Saturday night jitters to go to church on Sunday morning. <clears throat> it's by God's grace that together we stand firm as a church in Christ. But also it says God anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You are owned by God if you're a follower of Jesus. He has bought you by the blood of his son and will keep you until the very end. We who follow Jesus are owned by God. We're his possession. I wonder if you've seen the movie Gladiator. It's a great movie. Russell Crowe rides home to his home and he finds his family being murdered and he pretty much gives up of life and collapses on the ground and he's found by slave traders and they take him and he becomes the slave of a man named Proximo. And Proximo has a team of gladiators and so he puts Maximus into service as a gladiator to fight for the death for money 
for Proximo. He becomes his slave. Proximo owns him, and therefore Maximus does what he's told by Proximo as his slave. You who follow Jesus were once slaves to sin, the Bible tells us. You had no choice but to sin, to follow and worship the sinful desires of your heart. But then God paid the price of his son. God's son died on the cross to pay the price for our sin, to rescue us from slavery to sin and to enslave us to Jesus. We become slaves of Jesus. We're owned by him. And he anointed us for his work. He set his seal of ownership on us, the Holy Spirit in our heart, as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come, eternal life. We now serve him. We were once destined for damnation as sin's slave. Now we're destined for eternal life as Jesus' slave. One day we will wear the victor's crown. Slaves of greed work tirelessly. Slaves of sin have no hope. Slaves of Proximo fight in the arena as gladiators. Slaves of Jesus live for Jesus. Our whole life is lived in service to him, fully committed to him, motivated by him, compelled by him and his people and his work. We don't ask ourselves, should I serve Jesus today? We're slaves to him. So we serve him. Of course we do. He's our master. We live for him. We don't ask ourselves, should we go to church today? Of course we go to church because we're slaves of Jesus. And we love gathering with our brothers and sisters to worship and honour and sing about our wonderful, glorious master, Jesus. It's expected that we gather. I think it's taken for granted in the epistles, as, as Paul writes to the church, it's taken for granted that they're all there um, when, when the letter's read out, unless they're you know, particularly ill, um, as we've all, many of us have a turn lately, being ill. We're brought to love Jesus. And the first way that we do that is by loving our brothers and sisters at church, like the Apostle Paul did. In verse 23, Paul calls upon God himself as a witness that he's acting in a godly manner. He's not double-minded. He's not insincere. He's committed to the church. It's for their sake, actually, that he didn't return to them. Look at verse 23. I call God as my witness. I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it's by faith you stand firm. He doesn't want to lord it over them. They have a lord, the Lord Jesus. He's their brother, their co-worker more than anything else. He's working for their joy and their benefit, not trying to grieve them. He doesn't want to bring out a big stick of discipline. He wants to love them and encourage them and minister alongside them. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. He writes with great distress and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. It's because he loves them so much that he doesn't return, because he thinks it will just grieve them and complicate the situation, and it breaks his heart that he doesn't return, because he loves them so much. 
He's sure his presence will only complicate things, so he stays away to let them sort out their issues that he's written to them about. And then he goes on to talk about this this person that caused division. Um, Look at verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, and someone did, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he'll not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, reaffirm your love for him. Whatever happened, it's time to forgive. It's time to comfort the person who caused the problem and time to reaffirm their love as a church for their brother. And then we get this interesting bit at the end here. He says he writes, verse 9, Another reason I wrote you was to see if you'd stand the test, be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I forgive. What I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, so that Satan might not outwit us, for we're not unaware of his schemes. Satan loves to see disunity in the church, loves to see bickering, conflict, infighting, hates to see forgiveness and reconciliation. Satan doesn't want that because infighting and conflict creates division, breaks apart the body of Christ. Paul and the Corinthians have an intimate relationship and Paul wants to see that continue. The wrong has been done, the punishment has been paid, forgive now and reunite together. Satan's greatest weapon in a church is disunity. Going behind each other's back, gossiping, slandering, even at home. As a couple, perhaps as someone at church, it's getting on your nerves, you go home and have a gossip or a slander about them. That's the beginning of the end of a healthy and vibrant church. And so Paul calls for forgiveness and restoration. Let me wrap up. Friends, it's Christ's love that compels Paul, isn't it? Clearly. It's Christ's love that compels him. It's Christ's love that provides this spring inside of Paul that wells up to overflowing, an abundant love for his church. It comes from Christ. See his tears for his church, his grief for his church, his love for his church. The love of Christ compels Paul and builds in him this spring of love for the church. You see that? If we can rightly see ourselves as slaves of Jesus and submit to his loving and perfect and just rule, then we too will find this spring welling up inside of us, this spring of grace, of love, of kindness for one another here in our church. A never-ending river of love and servant-heartedness for one another. It's not about pulling up your socks and trying harder to love one another. It's, it's Christ's love that compels us. It's going to him, going to the cross, going to God's word first. And in you, the Holy Spirit will well up 
to love for one another. Christ's love compels us to serve. Christ's love compels us to love. Christ's love compels us even to forgive. Can I encourage you to live in God's grace, to take some time each day, each week, to stop, to rest, to pray, to remember who you are and what you have in Jesus, to sit in Christ's love for you, bathe in it, drink deeply from it as you read your Bible and reflect on the truths. Read 2 Corinthians half a dozen times this term at least. Remember the wonderful truth that you are a child of God bought at great cost by Jesus' blood. As good as holidays and families and epic lawns are, (laughs) they're great. They pale in comparison to the love of Christ, God's love poured out for you by Jesus' death, promised by the Holy Spirit. It's his love that compels us. It's, It's a privilege and a joy to be a slave, isn't it? A slave of Christ. Because not only are you Jesus' slave, you're his brother, you're his co-heir, you're his friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus longs to bless you, he longs to help you, he longs to comfort you, he longs to encourage you. If only you will open yourself up to him and go to him in his word and in prayer. And if you do that, friends, you'll find it easy to love one another and keep on loving one another for the long haul. As you daily live in God's grace, you'll find living out God's grace to be easy and a joy and a pleasure and not a burden. Like the first century Christians, you'll hardly be able to sleep on Saturday night. You'll be like a kid on Christmas Eve. You'll be so excited about church on Sunday morning. You might even turn up early to church. Imagine that on Sunday morning. Imagine Jono's joy. Uh, If everyone was here at nine o'clock, just doing tea and coffee and hanging out, loving one another, because they couldn't wait. You can't wait to get here. Such is this wellspring inside you of Christ's love compelling you. You're excited to learn from God's word together, to serve one another, to love one another and be loved by one another. Living in God's grace makes us joyful, makes us reliable, makes us trustworthy and true and honest. Friends, I want to give you two more encouragements, and I hope I don't strike any raw nerves here, but I might. Firstly, living in God's grace means you won't get tired of loving one another for the long haul. Harrington Park, generally speaking, is a bit older than Gledswood Hills, about half a generation older. Most of Gledswood Hills have young kids and babies. Not all. Some are older, some are younger. Most at Harrington Park, not all, have bigger kids and grown-up kids. Not all. But what I'm about to say applies to all. Many of you are empty nesters. Maybe you've been a Christian for a really long time and maybe you were young, you're excited and you're enthusiastic and you ran hard for Jesus and then you had kids and then you had teenagers and then it got hard. And now maybe you're, getting, you're just a bit tired. 
you're just a bit tired and there's all these other young people running around, aren't they wonderful? Our youth and young adults who run around and do all this stuff. It's fantastic. And maybe you see that happening and you think, you know what? I'm just going to ease up here a bit. I've done my bit of running hard for Jesus. I'm going to take it easy for Jesus. And maybe you're still running hard for Jesus, and that's fantastic. And I want to encourage you all to keep on running hard for Jesus and to look to him and his word for that energy to keep on running hard for Jesus for the long haul, for the sake of one another. And if you are a bit older and the kids have left home maybe a while ago, you have so much to give to us who are younger and the young adults, so much wisdom, so much experience, so much maturity of living for Jesus to pass on. So please do pass it on. Find, figure out ways. Get together as a team of older, wiser Christians and figure out how can we be a great blessing to those who are younger? How can we spur them on in their marriages? How can we encourage the parents who have babies and they're freaking out like we did? How can we keep on running hard for Jesus? And those of you who have the babies and the little kids, what a blessing it would be for the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90-year-olds to just invest in you and to help you get through that you might run for the long haul. There's a famous uh, preacher in our diocese named John Chapman. He died some time ago. And he wrote a book about running hard for Jesus right till your death. On his deathbed, when he couldn't really see anymore, he would ask young men to come and read the Bible to him for his sake. It was for their sake that he was getting them to read the Bible. On his deathbed, he was ministering to people by asking them to be a blessing to him and read the Bible for him, for them. Keep running hard. Even as you get older, keep running hard for Jesus and compelled by his love. And the second thing that might strike a nerve, and I hope it doesn't, but it might, is there someone in your church or even a past church that you need to forgive? Like this man here in Corinth. The wrong was made against you, perhaps recently, perhaps a long time ago, and you've never really forgiven them in your heart, let alone to their face. And perhaps time has come and gone to forgive that person because they're in a past church or something, but perhaps you harbour that hurt. And perhaps it, it keeps a big barrier around you from letting people in and letting yourself out to loving other people. Perhaps you're guarded and you keep people at a bit of distance so you don't get hurt again. Now, friends, that's not godly to hang on to that hurt and to keep people at a distance. Now, I'm not saying don't be wise and learn from your experiences so that you might not get hurt again. But I am saying you need to forgive genuinely in your heart as Christ has forgiven you so that you might drop that barrier and let people in again and give yourself out to people again. You need to forgive, if you can, to that person's face. And that might, you might need help to do that from a friend or from a minister or from a counsellor. But you need to forgive them. And if the time has long gone, they're two churches ago or something, 
you still need to forgive them in your heart because otherwise you're going to keep your church here who you've been called to love at arm's length. You're going to keep a barrier up at church. So that's the second thing. It's Christ's love that compels us to do these things, to love one another and to forgive. You've got to keep remembering that. It's not about trying harder. It's Christ's love that compels us. It's Christ's love that makes us say yes to serving and yes to loving one another. Friends, may we all live in the overwhelming grace of God daily, weekly, monthly, year after year. And may his love well up in us like a spring overflowing for love, to love for one another. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness to us. Lord, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Although he was falsely accused and hurt by his church, he continued to love and he continued to pour out himself to them. We thank you for his urging to forgive, to forgiveness, to passing on the forgiveness that has come to us from you to one another. And Lord, we, we long to have immense, unending energy for loving one another and we know, we know now that that comes from you, not from us pulling our socks up. So Lord, may it be your love for us and your grace to us that compels us and motivates us, motivates us in life to loving one another and loving all who come into contact with us in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, friends. So much to see. So good to see you all.